to Pass the Hot Sauce, a Roswell podcast. I'm Lorena Rose. I'm Lisa Abigail. And I'm Aliza Ora. On today's minisode, we're discussing the 1994 made-for-TV movie Roswell. There's a link in our show notes to watch the movie on YouTube, but frankly, I wouldn't recommend it. Instead, you can listen to this minisode, where we'll share with you all the highlights and the many, many lowlights of this piece of art. Is it, though? Um, I mean, you know, that's a question that we can debate. The movie follows the attempts of Major Jesse Marcel to discover the truth about strange debris found on a Roswell ranch in July of 1947. Thirty years later, the weight of the truth, however out of this world it may be, forces him to piece together what really occurred. The story was adapted from real-life events portrayed in the book UFO Crash at Roswell by Kevin Randall and Donald Schmidt. The screenplay was written by Arthur Copet, and the story is by him along with Paul Davids and Jeremy Kagan. None of these folks went on to do anything particularly interesting as far as I'm concerned, but Paul Davids and I went to the same elementary school, so fun fact relevant only to me. I was about to say, were you there at the same time? And then I remembered (laughs) that this movie came out 25 years ago, so... I was there when he was making this movie. There we go. Yeah. (laughs) It was directed by Jeremy Kagan, and the film premiered on the 31st of July, 1994, on Showtime. Oh, I was wondering what channel it was on. I knew it was a TV movie, but there is a lot of swearing in it, so I knew Mm -hmm. it couldn't be like Lifetime or ABC or anything like that. Yeah, I also knew it was made for TV, so I kept looking for commercial breaks, and I didn't see any that were really clear, which made sense when I found out it was on Showtime, which is, of course, yeah. a cable subscription channel. The music in this, as I think we all agree, was very, very dramatic, and I would like everyone to know that the composer, Elliot Goldenthal, has an Academy Award. Not for this. Oh, well, but I guess everybody, everybody's got to pay the bills somehow, so, Mm -hmm. uh, but the music was fantastic. It was super dramatic. The best part of the movie was the music. So this was really interesting when I was looking into him. He is the creative and life partner of Julie Tamer, who, yeah, adapted The Lion King for Broadway. She also had that little Spider-Man turn off the dark thing that we don't talk about. But her movie, Frida, was what he won the Oscar for. And he also, he was a composer on like a million other movies. So you might see his name when you're going through some good old 90s and 2000s gems. Very cool. I thought there was a reason that music sounded good. Yeah, they hired one guy who knew what he was doing. (laughs) Although I actually think for a movie this not good, the cast is amazing. They have a lot of very talented people doing a very dumb movie. Yeah, it's a good cast. Well, if it was Showtime, then, you know, there was some money behind this, presumably. I mean, even if it didn't translate into being a good film. They just spent it all on the cast and the music, not on directing or anything like that. Or the script. I Yeah, I think the script is where we really fall apart here. Yeah. 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 So for those who didn't watch the movie, you can glean a lot of the plot from our mini-sodes on the Roswell incident because it does loosely follow the real-life events. 
But this movie picks up in 1977, which, if you listen to those minisodes, you'll know, is right before the real-life Major Jesse Marcel shared his story publicly with author Stanton Friedman and others. So that's kind of how I thought the movie was going to end, with him being like, I'm going to tell my story. And instead, it ends with him being like, I'm standing in a field alone and I'm sad. He's with his son. He's not alone. Yeah. yeah. So we're not going to recap the plot of this like we do for our usual Roswell episodes. We're just going to hit on some of the highlights. And I think the biggest highlight is Kyle McLaughlin playing Jesse Marcel. And Martin Sheen! And Martin Sheen. So Kyle McLaughlin, if you're not familiar, he's the guy from Twin Peaks. He's also been in a ton of other stuff, most recently Portlandia. So if you are a super cool hipster, you might know him as the mayor from that. But also, super importantly, he plays Trey McDougal on Sex and the City. Never seen it. Also never seen Twin Peaks. Okay, well, you're missing out on both accounts, but in very different ways. He's also been in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and How I Met Your Mother. Never seen it, never seen it. And Desperate Housewives. I did see that, but I don't remember it. That's the one you saw! (laughs) I'm with Lisa on this one. That's the one you saw? My TV content education is, like, few and far between. But as you mentioned, Lorena Martin-Sheen is also in this, and I trust that every single person knows who Martin-Sheen is, but I just found out that he did a voice on Captain Planet. Oh, no way! He is Sly Sludge. Ooh, sounds like a bad guy. Right, I would imagine, yeah. So Martin Sheen's role in this movie is to hang around lurking ominously for one hour and ten minutes, and then in the final 20 minutes show up and do a metric crap ton of exposition, and then be like, okay, bye, end of movie. First he dramatically puts his sunglasses on, and then the movie's over. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I hope he got a bonus for that. He must have. But yeah, the first time I saw him, well, I saw his name in the credits and I got super excited. And then like the first time I saw him, I was like, okay, cool. It's like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And then we just see him lurking around forever and ever and ever. It was kind of a letdown. I thought he was going to be in way more of the movie. Well, he got second billing, so he should be in way more of the movie. That's just because he's Martin Sheen. Absolutely it is. Final casting note is that J.D. Daniels, who plays young Jesse Marcel Jr., was Peter in The Mighty Ducks. So I immediately had to turn off the movie to go watch The Mighty Ducks when I noticed that. And I honestly should have just left the movie off because it's not good. Which Mighty Ducks did you watch? I've seen The Mighty Ducks. Oh, good for you, Lorena. The first one. (laughs) D2 is my favorite one. I mean, they're all classics. Because I know everybody was wondering. I think D2 was my favorite as well, although it's been quite a long time since I've seen them. I should go back and watch those. Yeah, I uh, that scene with Charlie's mom and Gordon Bombay where she's talking about like <laughs> figure skating and wanting to be a princess. I was just like, that's what grown up life is going to be like. <laughs> oh, boy. If only. All right. Shall we spend the rest of this mini so just discussing Mighty Ducks movies? Because frankly, they're better <laughs> than this. Oh, yeah. Well, I guess we should talk about this movie since we told people we were going to talk about this movie. Fine. So the YouTube video that we have linked to has Spanish subtitles. And so I learned from this that the Spanish term for UFOs is OVNIS, which stands for Objetos Volador No Identificado. 
which makes sense, but isn't something that I ever thought of before. We're all learning something new today. So that's my only takeaway from this whole movie. (laughs) I did know that, but I watched a, I guess, a different version of the movie. I didn't take it off of the website show notes. Mine didn't have any subtitles. I wish that it had English subtitles. Did you have trouble understanding these people? Yeah, I had trouble paying attention because it was so boring that it would have helped if I could also read it. (laughs) I can talk a little bit about the things that are historically accurate, not accurate. I don't know how interesting that is. For sure. Yeah. So here's the first thing that I was like, what? They are celebrating the 30th reunion of the 509th Bombardment Group. So again, in our Roswell Incident minisodes, we talked about this. This is a real group. They were the ones who were responsible for dropping the atomic bombs during World War II, and then they were subsequently stationed in Roswell. So they were the guys who were around during this and were involved in Project Mogul, the official government explanation for the crashed material. But the 30th reunion of... What? It seems like they're there. They're there in 1977. So it's the 30th reunion of the 30th anniversary of the crash. But why would they celebrate that? The unit was active from 1944 to 1950. So I don't know what this was the 30th anniversary of. And also, is a unit just all the same guys for the whole six years? I don't know how the military works exactly, but seems weird. Also, In 1946, the 509th Bombardment Wing was renamed the 509th Bombardment Group, comma, Very Heavy, which I just find delightful. (laughs) That was the name of it? (laughs) That was the name of it. Yep. Very Heavy. Comma, Very Heavy. (laughs) Yes. I just picture some, like, clearly very early hippies just being like, whoa, heavy, man. That's heavy, man. So- we st- we agreed to watch this movie, and I didn't read any synopsis or know anything about it before I found it on Google. So it was about maybe 10 minutes into the movie before I went, oh, this movie's about Jesse Marcel? Okay, cool. <laughs> or I think it started as, oh, he's a character in this movie? Cool. Then I was like, oh, no, he is the character in this movie. Yeah, so a lot of these characters are based on real people, either directly or their composite characters or their renamed. Yeah, I recognize so many of the names. I think that the character Sherman Carson, who's played by Xander Berkeley, who is another actor who is way too talented to be in this movie, uh, was based on Sheridan Cabot, who we talked about in our minisodes. He's the one who essentially contradicted Marcel's story in the government's official Roswell report. So I wonder, at this time, this was before that happened, but I wonder if they avoided naming him because he was still alive and they didn't want to run into any legal issues. Ooh, probably. That makes sense. Also, Dwight Yoakam, who plays Mac Brazel, is very clear in this, that his name is pronounced Brazel, and we've been pronouncing it Brazel. So, I don't know if the movie's correct, but Mr. Brazel's family, if we have been pronouncing that name incorrectly this whole time, we apologize. Also, thanks for listening to our podcast. Yeah! One of my favorite parts of the movie, we're going way out of order now, but when Mac Brazel gets... um, detained and questioned by the military for Uh three days and they call him Mr. Brazel. Yes. You mean when he's kidnapped in broad daylight by a bunch of MPs who are clearly uniformed? Yes. Yep. When they shove him into a car like very loudly and obviously. 
Yeah, so when he's being detained, he also tells them that if he found a UFO, then they owe him a $3,000 reward, which I don't think the government ever offered reward money for finding UFOs. But $3,000 in 1947 money would be more than thirty-four grand today. Wow, so he could afford that nice new truck. Exactly. Well, I feel like er, somewhere in the beginning of the movie, there was something about that, like, a reporter or something was offering a reward. So that's why he decided to speak up about the stuff on his farm. So if he's getting cheated out of the reward by the reporter or the news agency, I think he just wants that money from the government. Because that's how the government works. They go, oh, somebody else was going to give you money. (laughs) And now... They can't because now this is confidential, but we'll give you that money. Sure. Oh, we feel bad for you. The government does that all the time, right? We feel bad and we'll make things fair. So like when I go out in my neighborhood and someone has a picture that says lost dog, $1,000 reward. If I find a dog, I should just take it to the government and be like, government, money, please. Cool. Yep. They'll be like, oh, we'll take that dog and give you a reward. To be clear, I would never hand a dog over to the government. So don't worry. No. Of course not. So I also, I couldn't find anything on Jesse Marcel Sr.'s cause of death. I didn't see anything about him suffering from emphysema, so I think this was added in for drama. This was set in 1977. He died in 1986, a few days before his 80th birthday, so it's possible by this point he was up there. Cavett also says in the interview that we mentioned that he was potentially not all there mentally by this point when he was giving interviews to folks so Mm. who knows i also i will say i think so kyle mclaughlin is obviously like in the 1947 scenes he's that's just him with no makeup on and then the old man makeup of him 30 years later i was like oh right now it's 25 years later let's compare yeah i thought the same thing he looks a lot better in real life yes i thought that when i googled him after the movie had ended to be like oh everyone was excited about his name like who is he what have i seen him in i was like oh he's a very very attractive older man but he is not a very attractive older man in the movie. And he barely looks like himself. Well, to be fair, so he's like 60 now, and the character he's playing in this is in his 70s. So he's playing a little bit older. But yeah, he's he's a silver fox. I think it's still safe to assume that he will look better at 70-something than his character did in this movie. Yes. Yeah, let's <laughs> check in in 10 years. All right. While we're still doing this podcast. We'll meet back here in 10 years. Reunion episode. Perfect. So are there any other highlights that y'all wanted to talk about from this movie? I don't know that highlights is the right word, but... Some highlights for me are the special effects, the 1994 special effects, um, like when they crumble up the metal and then it, un- like the space metal, and then it gets all uncrumpled and turns perfectly flat again. I feel like they did stop animation and in reverse to like do that mm-hmm. effect. And totally. it just was... Looked very, very fake. Yes. But it wasn't, like, CGI fake. Like, I feel right. like they... I mean, there were parts that were CGI fake, like the alien. But, uh, spoiler, they find real aliens, and one of them is still alive when they start to do the autopsy. And then they hold it captive, and then it dies in captivity after speaking 
telepathically to the government people. So now you really don't need to know the movie. You know everything that happens. But but refreshingly, for once, the government doesn't just straight up murder the alien. So cool. Yeah. That was nice. That was in the 20 minutes of the movie where all of the things happen. So if you do want to give this movie a try, just fast forward to one hour and 10 minutes. You'll know it's coming because Martin Sheen shows up, tells you the whole story. You get flashbacks to the relevant parts and then you're done. So just yep. do that. Although another highlight for me was Lisa Waltz playing the nurse who disappears. She has done a bunch of things, but the only one I care about is that she played Hallie Lowenthal in My So-Called Life. I haven't seen that either. <gasps> Whoa. Loria, go get, stop doing this right now. Put, take off your headphones, put down your microphone. Go watch My So-Called Life. What are you doing? This is just the podcast of Lorena has never seen that TV show. Oh my, no, this is one of the best television shows that has ever been made. Like, not one of the best teen shows, not one of the best 90 shows, one of the best shows, period. Consider it research. Jason Kasem's worked on it. Those are the kinds of female characters he could have been writing, should have been writing, didn't write. So the alien part was my favorite part of the movie, just because it was so ridiculous. It glowed blue. Also, um, what electrodes or like what things did they have on that alien's chest to measure or monitor its heartbeat? Because, like, why would human things work on an alien's chest? Well, and they they explicitly said he doesn't have a circulatory system, he doesn't have a digestive system, right. he doesn't have genitals, so... So why would they think he has a heart in his chest? You know, maybe he has two hearts. Maybe he's a time lord. Ooh, yeah. Ooh. Every single episode of the podcast, we're going to have to figure out who's a time lord. Yeah. Also, if you haven't checked out our show notes for our episode 285 South, you can find a really fun link to a supercut of people saying it's bigger on the inside because we talked about how James <laughs> Allerton definitely lived in a TARDIS. You're welcome. TARDISes, it turns out, come in all shapes and sizes. Well, all shapes. The size is always... Right. Just bigger on the inside. Yeah. Smaller on the outside. Yes. You guys are going to get really mad at me again, but that's another TV show I've never seen. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Why are you even admitting this to us anymore? I'm like confused about how anyone could have seen Desperate Housewives, but not seen a single episode of Doctor Who. That's really what trips me up to. I don't know. I mean, to be honest, I really don't know why I've seen Desperate Housewives. I don't know why it appealed to me in the first place. I probably felt like one of the women was beautiful. Oh, wait, no, wasn't Terry? Terry Hatchett was in that show, right? And she was Lois on The Adventures of Lois and Clark, which was my TV obsession mm. before Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That was like my first TV obsession and probably my first girl crush, although I didn't even recognize it as such at that age. But that, okay, comes full circle. That's why I watched Desperate Housewives, because okay. Lois Lane from Lois and Clark was in Desperate Housewives. Okay, so there are pretty women on every single show that's ever been made for American television. So I would yes, strongly I encourage you to find better ones to watch. I didn't say I'm still obsessed with that show. Okay. I just said I watched it when it originally aired. When did that air? That was like at least 10, 15 years ago, right? Yeah, at least. Cause, oh yeah, because Arrested Development did a thing about it in their original run, so it had to be like 15 years ago. They did? Yeah. 
there's a cute little thing where the there people are like protesting it and the creator is standing there going it's a satire it's really funny oh yeah <laughs> now i remember that i haven't seen arrested development either shut up that's literally all this this episode is gonna be oh my god <laughs> the roswell movie or all the shows Lorena hasn't seen or Lorena gets kicked off our podcast for being bad at tv watching I've seen Buffy. I've seen all of the WB shows from the 90s, except Charmed. I didn't like that one for some reason. I watched a couple of episodes, didn't really get into it. Like, what the hell? And then apparently (laughs) I've seen Desperate Housewives. Uh, I've seen Castle many times. Castle? The Nathan Fillion one? Yes. I fucking love that show. I never watched that, but it looks real bad. It's so good. Also, Stonicatic is beautiful. All right, we need to work on your priorities. A lot of people are beautiful, okay? But she's really beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) I did also want to point out that that nurse, when she was in that restaurant, so nervous and scared and saying, bad things could happen to me if they found out that I talked. She's talking about it in a public restaurant. Mm -hmm. Is that really the place to talk about it? Um, fun fact, one of the waitresses in this movie, I don't know if it's in that restaurant scene with the nurse or in one of the country club scenes, but a person listed as waitress is Jessie Marcel's real life granddaughter. Oh, Oh, fun. That's cool. But speaking of that nurse, this is the person who in Glenn Dennis's account, the mortician who came forward with his story not until 1989, Um, said that she was the nurse that he talked to and then she disappeared and all record of her was erased by the government, which isn't what they go with here. They say she died in a plane crash. Or was it? Um, I loved her super accurate drawing of an alien, though, that then she (laughs) lights on fire to destroy the evidence. (laughs) Even though it could have been a child's drawing of an alien. Yes. (laughs) Whatever Jesse Marcel's kid was hanging on to an actual piece of the UFO for at least a few days, so uh-huh. anything goes. Another part that I did really like about this movie was um, in the 20 minutes of exposition from Martin Sheen, when he starts talking about the possibility of multiverses, that oh, there's yes. not just our one universe, but that there could be multiple universes that are like, running in parallel to each other and that maybe the aliens like found a portal through the multiverses and so they didn't come from like light years away in another galaxy in our universe but they came from a very similar place in in like a parallel universe yeah i also i really enjoyed martin sheen's whole take on the aliens is they come through the multiverse they warp our dna they inspire our spiritual leaders (laughs) <laughs> what a weird set of activities for aliens. Yeah. Yes. They're like, we're going to genetically modify you. Look, Gandhi. <laughs> but yes, I liked the, I've always been fascinated by the idea of multiverses. And I know we've talked in this podcast before about how much we all love the His Dark Materials trilogy by Philip Pullman. But I just finished rereading the original trilogy. Um, and that book series deals a lot with um the idea of like parallel universes, sort of multiverses, mm-hmm. um, slightly totally. different concept, I think, but very similar in a lot of ways. And I am super fascinated by that concept. So I liked that this was part of his theory about where the aliens came from. Yeah, it was very neat. 
Martin Sheen also gives us our first mention in the movie, but second mention on this podcast of the place where I grew up. He mentions Bethesda, which is where I'm from, Bethesda, Maryland. I'm assuming that he's talking about what at this time was Bethesda Naval Medical Hospital. It's now part of Walter Reed, or it now is Walter Reed, I guess. Anyway, they imply that the person who is at Bethesda is in a psychiatric hospital there and is writing down all his thoughts in a journal, and then it gets to be too much, and he kills himself or is killed so there's this little tease of a conspiracy going on and then the movie's over yep pretty much they introduce all of the interesting ideas at the very very end yeah and then they're just like well we're done now yep okay let's go stand in a field and look artfully into the (laughs) distance while some beautiful music plays and the movie's over yeah it was really anticlimactic yeah i i was not expecting it to end there i mean i couldn't wait for it to end but when it did i was like oh really that's an interesting choice yeah and uh is there anything else we need to talk about with this movie did we cover it all i think your time would be better spent just spending 90 minutes staring at pictures of kyle mclaughlin yeah just google him on the internet and just find some pictures of him and see how well he's aged or spending 90 minutes either emailing us tweeting at us or commenting on her instagram to tell lorena all the shows that she needs to watch <laughs> perfect also for anyone who like i do likes to decide which episodes of roswell pass the bechdel test this isn't something that i've started sharing yet but i've started recording it so that i can eventually put it in our show notes this movie i believe does have a grand total of two named female characters they each have a couple lines and of course they never interact with each other so this movie's about dude stuff military stuff dude stuff big fat f on the test we don't know the alien's gender or if the alien has a gender but the alien also does speak before it dies and tells us important information but does not disclose anything about itself just says there are more coming different kinds i was really like i there were so many things that i was thinking or hoping that might happen at the end of this like maybe there'd be just a fleet of spaceships coming in and they're ready to get here yeah i was kind of expecting that nothing to place this movie in historical context as we said it was released in july of 1994 just about a month after the government released their official Roswell report. So this was really timely. And they didn't even know when they were making it, you know? I would assume not. They probably filmed it in 1993 or early 94 at the very latest. And they didn't know the government was going to release all those documents in, what, June? Yeah, so this worked out great. I don't know what viewership was like because it's showtime, so there aren't Nielsen ratings. But I would imagine a lot of people were at least talking about Roswell at this time. Yeah, it's very lucky timing. And that is the best thing we can say about this movie. It was well-timed. Yes, and had beautiful music. Thanks for joining us for this really great movie that we all loved so much. Woohoo. Join us again for our next mini-sode in two weeks, where we will be talking about pop culture depictions of aliens over time. But first, join us next Tuesday as we discuss Roswell Season 1, Episode 8, Blood Brother. 
And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and leave us a rating and review. You can always find our website at www.roswellhotsauce.com where you can find show notes and other great information. You can follow along with our social media adventures on Twitter and Instagram at Roswell Hot Sauce. And if you have anything you want to tell us, our email is roswellhotsauce at gmail.com. Until next time, join us in yelling at Lorena for watching Desperate Housewives instead of some of the greatest television shows of all time. Do you have any suggestions for what she should watch? Let us know!